You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. The Barclays Marathon are run pretty much every year, not this year, but pretty much every year, and it's one of the most insane things in the entire world that I've ever seen. Now, it is entirely possible that over the past couple years, I may have mentioned this in a sermon before, it's entirely possible that if we've had any lengthy conversations at any point in time, let's take some of the bass out of what I sound like here, there we go, it's entirely possible that at any point in time over the last couple years, you've heard me talk about the Barkley Marathon because it's weird and it's insane and I've watched way too many documentaries about one niche race. But here's how it all works. Every year, some of the craziest people in the world gather together. There's some of the best ultramarathoners and long-distance runners in the entire world come to this remote place in the backwoods of North Carolina. And this race is organized by this old guy who used to be one of the kind of the early pioneers of ultramarathoning, and he's just decided to punish everyone who has decided to follow in his footsteps. And so it's a 20-ish mile loop. The path changes every year. The map changes a little bit every year, but it's around 20 miles every year. And over the course of three days, the contestants are trying to run it five different times. And so they come and they arrive, and there's a basically a 48-hour window when they get there between when they actually arrive and when the race could start. So they come in. They get to see the trail map. He takes all of their devices. You get no cell phone, no GPS watches, nothing like that. Just a Casio digital watch to monitor your time and a paper map. They sit down. They draw out all the pathway. They figure out what their map is going to be, and then they get ready to go. And at any point in time, he can blow the horn, and when he does, you have one hour to be ready. So that could happen at 8 in the morning. That could happen at 4 in the afternoon. That could happen at 2.30 a.m. And as soon as that blows, you know it's time to get up and go no matter what's going on. And then the chaos begins. Because not only is this a trail run, but it's not really a trail run. It's just kind of a jaunt through the woods. And you have a basic idea of where to go. But as you're out there, to prove that you've gone the entirety of the lap, you have to find these books that he's hidden all along the trail. When you find the book, you have to take the page out that corresponds to your number. And so by the time that you get back from your lap, you have a whole stack of pages that go along with every single stop. It's so chaotic and difficult that sometimes, even on their first lap, people get halfway out, can't find a book, get lost, and it takes them 20 hours to get back even after they've already quit the race. So usually most of the contestant field is wiped out after the first lap. But if you make it through the first lap, you get a little bit of a rest time, and then you run it backwards, and you have to go through it all the way backwards, and then you go again the other way, and again the other way, and then on the last one, if you make it to the fifth, then you get to choose which direction you go. If you make it three full laps, you get awarded what's called the fun run, which is demented, that they would call it such a thing, because nothing sounds fun about any of this. But of course, if you complete all five laps over the course of those three days, then I think it's three days then you are a Barkley finisher. Now, here's the thing. Barkley started in the late 80s, and since then, I think it's either 15 or 17 individuals have finished it out of the thousands that have run it. It's an insane finish rate. But, again, I told you I've watched way too many documentaries about this, and there are a lot out there if you want to. But I watched one in particular, and I think it was focusing on the 2015 running of this. 
And it was the first time ever that there were two people primed and ready to finish that final lap. And so the first person got to pick the direction they want to go. He had the best time, and so he chose his direction. The other person had to go the opposite direction. So these two guys set out. They're running this loop in opposite directions. So hours and hours go by. I think you have 12 hours to run each lap before you're disqualified, and you have a total time that you have to make it in for the whole thing. So one guy runs around, and he finishes, and he comes across. There's a gate that kind of serves the finish line. You have to touch it and then show the leader of it all your pages, and then you are certified as a finisher. He comes across. He touches the gate. Somebody takes his pages, and the dude literally just collapses, just falls on the ground. He's crying. His whole body is trembling. He is just at a point of mental, emotional, and physical exhaustion. He is done. And so then he sits down, they're handing him food, they're trying to get him all back, and then you notice some time has gone by, and the other guy hasn't showed up yet. And more time goes by, and the other guy hasn't come, and so people are starting to say, oh man, what if he's out there passed out? What if he got lost? What if he's turned around? What if he's not going to make it back? And then down the last little walkway, you see him start to emerge on the fire road, and he's We'll call it running. It's more like a tripping and a hobbling towards the finish line. But as this is happening, you see the counter in the bottom of the screen, and you realize he's got like 45 seconds to make it back, and he can barely walk. And he stumbles and stumbles and stumbles, and he finally gets to the gate five seconds after his time limit expires. But even if he had made it on time, the first thing he yells out is as he is literally crying. This thing is horrifying. This, this grown man is weeping as he's touching this gate, and all he can get out of his mouth is, I messed up the pages, and he like forgot a page. And so he's done all of this, all of this stuff. But because of five seconds and one missed book page, he goes from being a Barclay finisher, one of 17 people in the world to ever do this thing, <laughs> to having a fun run. All that work, all that effort, all that misery just to be wiped away by a poor finish. In our lives, and maybe this is more true for some people than others, but at some area of our life, at some point, there's a temptation to start to coast. Maybe it's with school or a job, a relationship, anything along those lines. You get in and maybe you're really excited, you're really passionate, you're ready to dive in and move forward with all your energy and all your effort, and then it either becomes normal or maybe a little difficult or the circumstances aren't great, and we start to say, you know what? I'm just going to ride this out. I'm just going to sit back until the storm passes. I'm just going to sit back until things blow over. And we do that especially in the Christian life. You follow Jesus. You experience his grace and mercy. You're overwhelmed by how the God of the universe could love somebody like me and could save somebody like me, not based on my works, but by grace alone, through faith alone. What an amazing thing. You love coming to church. You love being around other Christians. You love singing and praying. And then the routine kind of settles in. Or then maybe life starts to get kind of difficult. Or your circumstances don't match your understanding of what you think the Christian life should look like or feel like. And we start to get tired. Or maybe you get frustrated because people are frustrating. And you think, man, why am I wasting my time and my ministry and my effort doing all these things? I know I'm good. I know I'm going to heaven when I die. I know how this whole thing works out. I'm just going to sit back, rest on my laurels, and just wait for Jesus to come. But in the Christian life, I feel like I can say this pretty confidently. As far as 
it depends on us and our actions and what we do, how we end is far more important than how we begin. Because when we talk about being a Christian, how we begin has nothing to do with us. You don't have to work your way there. You don't have to accomplish anything. You don't have to jump any hurdles. We talk over and over again that salvation is by grace alone, that it's a gift. So none of us can boast and say, oh, look what I did and how I earned God's favor. He lavishes that on us freely. And so we do nothing. He draws us to himself and loves us by his grace and by his mercy. But then that's when our responsibility begins. When he saves us, he calls us out of that darkness like we sang and into marvelous light. And he says, now take this gift that I've given you and now go and use it. Use this new life. Use this salvation that I've given you for the purpose of bringing glory to me and for the good of others. And so then it becomes very clear that our responsibility, since we had nothing to do with our beginning, is to make sure that we finish well. To make sure that we live our life each day more for the glory of God than the day before. That we're, for using track and marathon terms, we're running those negative splits. That every day we're just getting closer and closer. Every day we're drawing nearer and nearer. Every day we're serving more and more until the day when either Christ comes again or we breathe our last and we can fully stand in his presence knowing that we used every moment for the glory of God. And that's what Paul did. Paul lived that kind of life. The closer he got to the end, the more vigorously he served his Savior. And so we're going to look at some of Paul's parting words here as we get very close to the end of 2 Timothy. And we're going to see Paul basically tell Timothy that he's about to die. But doing that, knowing that his last breath is approaching, he still was vigorous and living out the faith that his God had given him and serving well. So we're going to look this morning at Paul's example and hopefully be driven to a same kind of passion to be the kind of people who finish well. And so our passage this morning is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 through 8. And this is the word of God. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Almighty God, we just thank you that Christ finished well on our behalf. That you didn't coast when it came to salvation. But that you accomplished everything that we needed to have a right relationship with you. So Father, I just pray right now that you forgive us for the times when we are apathetic to our calling that you strengthen us in the times when the calling seems too overwhelming and endurance is hard to come by. But God, I pray that you give us the strength and willingness to be the kind of people who finish well. And we ask all, this thing, all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the older I get, 
the more I realize that life at times will offer you sometimes subtle and sometimes not so subtle reminders that you are very mortal, that you are getting older and that you are marching on an endless pathway and an unstoppable pathway towards death. Now, sometimes those things are very obvious, very present, and very scary, right? A car accident that you are blessed and lucky to walk away from, a sickness or a disease that's life-threatening, some kind of big, major, life-changing event, having a change in your finances to where you don't know where your next meal or your shelter provision is coming from. Sometimes these things are heavy and serious and overwhelming. Sometimes they're subtle, like when the music that you listen to in middle school starts coming on classic rock stations. <laughs> or I remember the first one like this is when, I think it was Seinfeld showed up on Nick at Night. Now that is a reference that I imagine that a significant portion of our congregation has no idea what like three of those words even meant. But I remember when the Seinfeld showed up on Nick at Night, I thought, I'm a thousand years old. I remember new episodes of these because I remember when I was a kid, Nick at Night, for those of you who don't know, Nickelodeon, I don't know if it even still does it. I don't even know if it's still a channel. Everything has changed greatly over the past several years. But Nickelodeon used to show old TV shows at night. And for me, when I was a kid, those shows felt a thousand years old. It was Gilligan's Island and I Love Lucy and shows that I loved but felt like they happened a million years prior. And then I was looking at a show on Nick at Night that some human beings in the world would think that show is a million years old and thus think I was a million years old. And I was horribly reminded, I'm going to die. Like maybe not today, but like I'm marching towards that eventually. And so it can be difficult to wrestle with those things. And so I think for the most part, we just don't. Most of us, when those reminders aren't happening, just kind of block it out. I don't really think about death a whole lot. I try not to. Just try to block it out that it's not really a thing that's going to happen, and I just try to live like I'm pretty much invincible. Because naivety seems to just work better. But for Paul, there's no denial or naivety here. And it can be easy to forget Paul's situation as he's writing to Timothy, because he's writing this so normally. It just feels like he's writing this from his office at the megachurch of wherever in the ancient world, and he's just sitting in his office writing this letter to one of his protégés, or he's at the university of the first century writing this letter to Timothy as a good pastoral professor, teaching him how to live and how to exist, and we can forget that Paul is probably writing this letter from a Roman prison, knowing that he's about to be executed for his faith in Jesus. And so he knows he knows that he's going to die soon. And that's where we see Paul living in that balance, that Christian balance of recognizing the importance of ministry in the here and now and also longing for what's to come. Remember, it's Paul that says to live is Christ and to die is gain. But usually, we kind of just swing on that pendulum, don't we? There's people. That's just what we like to do. We like to go to polar opposites from one side to the other. And so maybe you're somebody who just refuses to acknowledge that death is even a possibility, and you're just carpe in the diem every single day and just draining every ounce of life out of every moment. And sometimes that even moves us to live in kind of a selfish way. I don't care what happens. I don't care what's going on around me. What I'm doing in my life, I've got one life to live, and so I'm going to live it. Or maybe you find yourself on the other side of that, of that pendulum, and all you can think about is this is going to end. This is going to end. In which case, if, if that's you, if you're in that camp and you think about death a lot, this is 
probably not making you feel great when I'm just like, we're marching towards death. <laughs> so just try to bear with me. But we swing back and forth there sometimes. But the Christian perspective there that Paul has so clearly is this understanding of his end, that all the time that he has is reserved for Christ, and he is going to use every moment of life. But the minute that God calls him home, he's ready to go. Look at the language he uses. In verse 6, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul says, every moment that I have is for Christ. Every moment that I have is a drink offering poured up to God, offered up to God, and used for the good of those around me. Paul Paul could have done nothing at this point if he wanted to, but he was using his last precious time on earth to instruct Timothy and build him up and help him to be able to carry on that reins and to keep moving forward. And so Paul says, I am being poured out for you. My whole life is an offering for you and for the glory of God, but my time of departure is coming, and he was ready to go. A perfect balance there, stopping that pendulum of knowing the importance and the beauty of life in the here and now, but also being ready for the life to come. In the same way, we need to learn to recognize that our lives are indeed temporal. And as we're going to talk about in a moment, we need to look forward to that goal and that hope and that promise that we have in Christ. But we also need to make sure that we use our time well longing to reach the end in a way that glorifies God. And that's not even talking about just the end of our lives. Because sometimes we have seasons that make us want to check out for a moment. Sometimes we have periods of time in our life where we think, I'm just going to sit this one out and I'll jump back on the ship as soon as all of this is over. But God calls us to finish well in those times too and to pour our lives out as an offering for the salvation of those whom God has placed in our lives. And so that means we need to be the kind of people who leave a gospel legacy. Hiking is fun. I like hiking. I enjoy it. If you haven't done it, I recommend it. It's good to just get out. Although right now, the grass pollen is killing me. This gland feels like it's the size of a grape, and it's just because I was outside in grass yesterday. And it's just like, I can't move. It's ragweed, and then something else, and something else. I'm always just, ah, it's just gross. But I still like to be outside. And hiking a mountain in particular is a unique experience. And so whether it's just something like Stone Mountain or whatever, if you've ever hiked a mountain, there's a process to it, and it's, it's kind of different. And so for me, the first time I really noticed this feeling was hiking Mount Yona outside of Cleveland, Georgia while I was in college. I love Mount Yona. It's one of those places for me. You know, I don't know if you have places that you just feel like God has used. It's almost that space gives you a Sabbath and a rest and a direction. That's kind of there for me. But the first time I ever went up Mount Yona, it was not a pleasant experience. So while I was at Truett McConnell, there were like basically six people that went to school there. I think it was 400 or something. But on the weekends, everybody went home except for a few people. So one weekend, I was up there. Some of my friends from Loganville came up to stay with me. And so we hung out all weekend, went to church on Sunday morning. And after church, I went out to eat with those friends. They went back home and I got back to my dorm room. And this is, it's not before text messaging, but it's at the time when text messaging cost you money. And so we didn't do it. At, I remember a guy that was in my school, he was selling all of his music gear once because he had this long-distance girlfriend, and they ran up like a $3,500 phone bill from all the text messages, and 
phone calls before nine that they made. And again, this is really putting us in a very distinct place that if you're below like 27, you're, what are you talking about before nine? Why was nine special? But after nine, it didn't cost money. I don't know why. It's just the way the world worked. But before nine, phone calls cost you money. It was a strange time to be alive. But so instead of text messaging or a phone call, because we didn't want to risk having to explain that to our parents, there was a note on my computer desk. And it just said, hey, it was from my roommates, Chris, we're on Mount Yona. Come find us, bring water. And I thought, okay, cool. I'd never really hiked before and certainly never taken water. So I just rolled out in my blue jeans, which A, problem one, because if you know me, I just sweat to a ridiculous level. So why would I want to wear blue jeans? It was a weird idea. But then also when they said bring water, my thought was, okay, I'll go grab some water. So I stopped at the Ingles on the way and I grabbed two gallon jugs of water. And then I just started walking up a mountain with two gallon jugs of water in my hand like a fool. And so I'm walking for a little while and then my phone rings and it's my buddy, Steven, and I answered the phone. I said, hey, what's up? He's like, hey, how's it going, man? How's it, how's it coming? I was like, good, I think I'm there. I've been walking for a while. I think I'm getting close. And he says, I have some bad news for you. And I said, what? And he said, look up into your right. And I did. And then I saw Mount Yona, and I was not on it yet. I was nowhere near Mount Yona yet. I was on the trail leading up to Mount Yona. Now there's a nice trailhead that gets you directly to it, but before you had to go through this weird neighborhood and it was a whole thing. And I could see Steven at the top of the mountain jumping up and down, and it was very deflating and defeating. And so I just keep walking and walking and walking, and it seems like two, three hours later, I finally make it to the top of my stupid gallons of water, which one of them I drank a lot of, so now I was walking at an awkward angle because one was heavier than the other. And I finally make it to the top of the mountain, and I'm exhausted, and I'm tired, and I'm just done. I'm just kind of grumpy. But Mount Yona's amazing because it's got this big open rock face, and you can just see down into the Yona Valley, and it's beautiful. And all of a sudden, I didn't feel any of that stuff anymore. And I looked back and I saw where Stephen saw me walking and it seemed like a million miles away, but I didn't feel it anymore. I just thought, wow, I did all that, carrying two gallons of water like a fool because that's what I did. But I made it and it felt good. It felt invigorating. It felt exciting because you can literally see how far you've come. And sometimes God gives us those moments and Paul receives one here. Paul's journey was a doozy. It was a monster mountain climb. He was a persecutor of the church, met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, embarked on this mission to become an apostle of Jesus and a planter of churches, went all over the known region in the time to plant churches, to lead people to Christ, to instruct people on how to live in a way that follows after Jesus. He was arrested. He was stoned. He was mocked. He was persecuted. And now he was facing execution. But he looks back. And he's still able to do so, recognizing the beauty and seeing it all with admiration. Look how he describes his life in verse 7. He says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. What an amazing summary of a life. I fought the fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. We've talked a lot recently about endurance. And endurance is one of those characteristics of Christianity that we don't talk about a lot, but that the New Testament seems to describe as one of the most important characteristics of a Christian. More so than morality, more so than church attendance. It talks about endurance as being the mark of a true follower of Christ. But you can't always appreciate endurance 
while you're enduring. Otherwise, they would call it fun. And not in a weird, twisted way like the Barkley Marathon where they're like, fun while people are falling over dying. And they play taps when you, when you lose. So you quit the race and you walk back to the thing and they play taps over you as you just crawl back in misery and then mock you with the title of a fun run. Anyway, so endurance is hard to, in, to endure well. Very few people just enjoy that kind of spent in their life. And there are plenty of times in our lives where emotionally, physically, spiritually, and mentally, we feel spent. And we have to endure, and we have to grind it out. And very rarely do we, in the midst of that, think, this is nice. I'm glad I'm doing this. I'm enjoying this. But usually it's on the other side. Think about Old Testament Israel. God makes this promise to Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a mighty nation. I am going to make your descendants like the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore, and you are going to be a blessing to the entire world to the point where Jesus would one day later say, Abraham saw my day coming, and he rejoiced in it. God gave him this good news of the gospel coming through his lineage. He says, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing, but it's going to take a minute. And then comes 400 years of slavery for Abraham's descendants. And they come out of that. They go into the promised land. They get to enjoy some of that blessing. And then they start to fall into sin and they mess up. And then boom, 400 years of exile. But what's amazing is that when God is communicating to future generations, he would say, hey, don't you remember? I'm the God of your father, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I'm the God who brought your forefathers out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. Don't you remember that good news? They had to endure this incredibly difficult thing, but I brought them out on the other side, and you can see my faithfulness. You can see the promises that I've made. Look at the hope that comes from what, for one group of people, was hard and difficult and caused them great pain and anguish. Now is a message of hope for future generations. And in the same way, God gives us those times where we go through seasons of great difficulty. We have to endure but he brings us out on the other side and he leads us out and we're able to look back and say, wow, look what God did there. It was overwhelming. It was difficult. It was hard. But look at how God has provided. Look at how God has led me safely to the other side. And we get to recognize his providence, but also we get to recognize our faithfulness. I think it's amazing that Paul uses the language of I here. Because we know Paul is the guy who just beats the drum that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. That it's no longer I, but Christ who lives in and through me. That everything, Paul says, everything good I do is all Christ working in and through me. And yet here in this passage, when he's talking to Timothy, he says, look, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. And it's just Paul reminding us, not boasting here but showing God's grace and provision in and through his life. It's like, look what God enabled me to do. A persecutor of the church. Somebody who had no right or no station to be able to stand before a church and preach the good news of Jesus. Look what God has done in and through my life. Now that I'm at the mountaintop, which for Paul, it's a very weird mountaintop in a Roman prison, but he's at that mountaintop of his life and he looks back and he says, wow, Look where I was and look where I am. Look what I had to endure, but look how God has delivered me. And look how he's enabled me to be faithful through all of this. 
As we grow and serve and work and endure, God is constantly working in and through us. He's refining us. He's shaping us. And he's leading us step by step to the finish line. And so with each passing season of life, and especially when we do get to that point, if we're able to look at it like Paul does and kind of see that end drawing near, whether it's a season in our life that's coming to a close or even life itself, it should be our desire to be able to look back like Paul did. To be able to summarize our lives by saying, I did it. I fought the fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith through it all. We need to be the kind of people who leave a legacy of Jesus. And I wonder if we, if I, if you guys, if any of us, live each day with that as our driving thought. That today is a day that God has given me. That each breath is a chance that God has given me to honor and to glorify him and to leave a legacy for him. This is a moment where I have the opportunity to fight the fight. This is another step that I get to take in finishing the race. This is another moment where I can keep the faith and lead people to an understanding of who Jesus is. If we lived that way, imagine how incredible the impact of our lives would be on others. Imagine the the weight that our church would have in our community and throughout the world. Imagine if all Christians all over the world began to have that mentality of today I am going to leave a gospel legacy and I'm going to run this race well, whether it's easy or whether it costs me something severe, whether I'm enjoying it or I have to endure through it, I'm going to keep pressing on and so that God will be glorified and people will be drawn near. We need to develop a passion for leaving the kind of legacy that Paul did, of using every moment for God's glory, being willing to be poured out as a drink offering. So whether we find ourselves fondly reflecting at the end of the day or just finding ourselves opening our eyes in the presence of Christ, we'll be able to say, I did it. Through the power of Christ in me, I've finished the race, I've fought the fight, and I've kept the faith. And look what God has done through that. Look at the lives that were shaped and changed. Look at the people who were saved and baptized. Look at the way our church impacted the community for the gospel. Look at how the world has shifted because of the faith and the work that God has led me through. But of course, it is about more than just leaving a legacy, right? The Christian life is that balance between what's come, what is, and what's going to be. Now, I hate working out genuinely, just genuinely hate working out. I like to exercise if it's things that I like to do and things that I think are fun and things that make me forget that I'm exercising. But as far as just working out, I hate it. I'll do it because, you know, again, slowly getting older and the mortality kicks in and I just want to make sure that I can live as long as I can and be as healthy for as long as I can, but it's never fun for me. But I think even those weirdos that like working out and then enjoy just grinding it out in the gym and getting their gains with a Z and all that kind of stuff, that, that weird thing that's disconnected in their brains that makes them enjoy such punishment and pain, even for those folks, because I know a lot of them, there are some days where the workout is the reward. They just get in there and they're pumping everything out and they come out and they just feel just energetic and excited and that was all they needed. They just needed that workout. But sometimes, and more often than not, and almost all the time for me, the workout is for the reward, right? You go through the pain, you go through the difficulty, you go through the hardship so that you can accomplish something, reach something, or attain something. In verse 8, Paul talks about reward, which is important to notice here. He says, I fought the faith, 
I fought the, <laughs> he didn't fight the faith. He did early, but then he got on board with it. So he says, I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And again, he uses that language of judge that we saw just last week as he uses that as a warning against slothfulness and laziness. He now says, that God who is the judge, he's going to award me this crown on that day. Paul looked back with love and affection and thankfulness. But he found his ultimate joy and his ultimate motivation in what was to come. Remember, Paul is the same guy who says that if in this life only we have hope in Jesus, that we're to be pitied above all people. And he doesn't mean, I mean, just for salvation, yes, obviously, because we'd be still dead in our sins and trespasses. But even if the work we were supposed to do was just good social work to make everybody feel good and to make everybody feel better and to have a better, healthier, happier life, if that's all that we were doing, if that's our only purpose, then at the end of the day, at the end of the road, there was nothing beyond this life, then at the end of it, did we really make that much of a difference? Paul says, no, there's something even better to come. And that was his driving force and his ultimate hope. And this reminds us that, again, some days ministry is easy. Some days living for Jesus is easy, and we just get to be excited about it, and the work is the reward, and we get to see maybe somebody put their faith in Jesus, or we get to see our church do something awesome and make a big impact in the lives of other people, or we have just moments of good, sweet Christian community, and we think, yes, it's all worth it. But then some days we experience rejection. We feel like we failed. Everything falls apart. It's just a dumpster fire. And we just think, man, what was the point? Did God get any glory out of it? Could that possibly have been for any good? We just feel upset and angry or ashamed by it or even a little bitter about it and have to fight off that desire to grumble or complain. But no matter the experience, no matter what that day's work feels like, the reward is the same. And we're called and reminded here to work in good seasons and bad. To work when we feel like it, like we talked about last week with preaching. To be willing to do it when everything is exactly as it should be and to be able to do it when everything is falling apart. To be able to do it when we feel super healthy spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and physically. And to be able to serve and to love and to minister even when we feel like our life itself is falling apart. When it feels good and clean and perfect. And when it feels messy and sloppy and we just got all kinds in the way, the reward is the same. And Paul's hope here is a reward from God, the just and holy judge of the universe. He says, that God is going to put a crown on my head. And so anything I've had to endure in the here and now is absolutely and totally worth it. That's been his motivation from the start. That's the reason he could fight the fight. That's the reason that he could run the race. That's the reason that he could keep the faith because he knew, as he said in the book of Romans, that no matter what I endure in the here and now, I know Christ. And the surpassing worth of knowing him is greater than anything I can endure now. And eternity is much bigger than momentary suffering. And he says, not only to me, but to all those to all those who have loved his appearing. This is the hope and the reward of all followers of Christ. On our best days, on our worst days, those who seem to run the race really well and those who stumble through the entire thing, our hope comes exclusively from Jesus. 
But more often than not, again, on that swinging of the pendulum, we either live like we have no hope, where you have Christians who are just bitter and angry and grumble and complain about everything, who walk around like they're just constantly miserable because of the work that God has called them to do, and churches can be sad and depressing and grumpy and dark and gossipy places. And so on one hand, we live like we have no reward, or sometimes we live like we're trying to get the wrong rewards, the things that we do. We just want other people to notice. We want to make sure that everybody sees the work that we do. Everybody hears the songs that we sing, that everything that we do is done out in public so that people will look at us and be like, wow, she's so awesome. Man, he really loves Jesus. And we could be like, oh, man, it's all Christ. But really, we're just like, man, that's it. That's what I want. And maybe we don't even admit that, except in our quiet recesses of time. But we can live that way where we're more concerned about how people are going to see and perceive what we do than we are about the fact that we're doing it for the glory of God. But we need to be the kind of people who keep our eyes forward and our hearts and hands firmly fixed in the here and now. To be the kind of people who serve diligently, longing to see people saved and transformed by the gospel, but also who are desperate and ready for eternity, knowing that everything that we do and everything that we endure is leading us towards a reward that is far beyond what we could ever imagine. Jesus says, if you want people's praise, you'll get people's reward. And when somebody says, good job, that's all you get. But he says, the Father who sees in secret, he will reward you in a way that is beyond your farthest imagination. And so if we do this, if we live in this careful balance of serving and loving in the here and now while longing and reaching for the ultimate reward, the result will naturally be a legacy that is drenched in the gospel within our wake, people being saved and baptized and growing in the faith and being strengthened for ministry. And we'll see that evidence of God's faithfulness and salvation. And then one day we'll stand before God And the God, the just and righteous judge of the universe, will look at us and say, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And he will lay a crown on our head. And you don't necessarily have to have the resume of Paul because, again, Christ is enough. But we'll be able to look back as we receive that reward from God and see all that's happened, all the good, all the bad, all the ugly, the times when we were just killing it and doing everything the right way, and the times when we were just a disaster, falling apart with absolutely no clue how anything was going to come together. And we'll see all of those times And we'll just look at it with awe and reverence and see the beauty and design as God led us from day to day. And then we'll get to rest with Christ for all of eternity. And so let's use each day as an opportunity to finish well. On the small scale, just trying to finish today well. Sometimes that's enough of a challenge on its own to just finish today well and be able to look back and be like, whew, I finished it. I got through it. I kept the faith for one whole day. Like sometimes that's where we need to start. But also to be able to finish strong with every day the Lord blesses us with, finishing well and using our life as a drink offering for the glory of God and the good of others. But never forgetting that our ultimate hope is bigger than our deepest failure. That the rest that we have promised in Christ will last far longer than anything that we have to endure in the here and now. 
And then one day, if we've trusted in Christ for salvation, we'll stand before the God of the universe and he'll put a crown on our head and bring us into his rest. And we'll be reminded that every little bit of it was worth it. So let's endure well, let's fight well, race well, and keep the faith and entrust our lives to the God who knows better than we do and pray and long that we would be the kind of people, the kind of church, and the kind of kingdom that would leave a legacy of the gospel. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you and we praise you for all that you've done for us. We thank you that even though our ministries are never perfect and we have bad days and worse days and ugly days, that our reward is the same. That if anyone's put their faith in Christ Jesus and found joy in his appearing, then our hope for eternity is founded firmly in you. God, we also know that you've called us to use every moment of our life not trying to get out as fast as we can, but to say like Paul, to live as Christ. And with every moment that you've given me, I'm going to use my life to love you and to serve you and to make your name known throughout the world. So God, help us to be willing to be the kind of people who use our lives for your glory and the good of others, to be poured out as a drink offering and to leave a legacy of faith on which others can stand and endure. But God, also remind us of the beautiful hope that we have in Christ Jesus, that one day we will stand before you not condemned by our sin, but covered in your grace and get to rest in eternity with you forever. But you know we need your help, and so we ask that you give us strength and equip us and encourage us for the task, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.